please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, reading verses 10 through 21. Verses 10 through 21 of Mark 14, once again, God's holy word. Mark 14, beginning in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And concerning the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So kids naturally take after their parents, which makes us all true children of Adam. For just as Adam was, so also are we blame shifters. Indeed, if you think about it, whenever we can, we will push guilt from us over on someone else. Remember, Adam insisted it was the woman's fault. Eve blamed the serpent. We all do this. It's a blight of humanity. Though it is especially popular today, as the coolest thing to be is the victim. Indeed, there seems to be practically a competition today. Who can be the biggest victim? For if you are the victim, then it's the fault of others, and you're off the hook for your behavior. And so the employee blames the foreman, who in turn rips on the supervisor, who points the finger at upper management, who throws the CEO under the bus, who then turns around and blames the shareholders. And above all else, you can always blame the flawed system. Now, of course, critiquing error in others may be accurate. Indeed, it isn't hard to see others' imperfections. But does that excuse us? Do the defects of others make our blunders go away, not matter? Well, as our Lord makes preparation, he clarifies that the law allows no excuses. So during some hospitality in the village of Bethany, We just witnessed a most impressive woman whose faith and love anointed Jesus for his upcoming burial. The clarity of her faith has surpassed anything that we've seen so far in the disciples. 
and our Lord praised her with an enduring memorial that would be carried with the gospel wherever it goes. And this idea of preparation is still central to our story. The woman's generous burial preparations, remember, was contrasted with the murderous plots of the priests and the scribes in verses 1 and 2. And all of this unfolded just two days before Passover, which was the season for festal arrangements. To put it simply, the first part of chapter 14 is all about Passover preparations. The priests got ready by trying to squeeze in a murder. The woman made arrangements by anointing Jesus. And now we're going to see how the others are gearing up. And first up is Judas. With the room basking in the beautiful aroma, Judas quickly takes his leave. Yet as we zoom in on Judas Iscariot, what do we know about him? Or more particularly, what has Mark told us about Judas? Well, he has only been mentioned once before, way back in chapter 3, in the list of the Christ-chosen apostles where it says he was one of the twelve. And this designation is a hefty one with honor and companionship. In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus chose the twelve to be near him. He handpicked these men whom he desired to be his close comrades and mutual servants in the ministry. The twelve got the inside scoop, the secrets of the kingdom. They had front row seats to all the miracles. Jesus even ordained the twelve with the authority to preach and with the power over demons. This means that Judas has preached the gospel. People came to faith in Jesus through the preaching of Judas. He also cast out demons and healed the sick. He has been a brother in arms with Jesus in doing the work of the kingdom. This is such a unique privilege and distinction. Not even Paul really enjoyed the same thing. But there was, but there's one more detail given to us about Judas back in chapter 3. Next to Judas's name in that list, Mark penned the one who betrayed Jesus. This whole time we have known that Judas would betray Jesus. This is more than the other 11 apostles even knew. Of course, this multiplies our curiosities like crazy. Did Judas fall away slowly? Was he secretly evil the whole time? Was Judas a Dr. Jekyll and then a Mr. Hyde took over? Well, Mark gives us nothing about the inner psychology of Judas, but he does narrate his breaking point. Passover is just days away. Tens of thousands of dollars of perfume was just destroyed. And Jesus <clears throat> confirmed his soon burial. Whatever evil ideas are swimming around in his head, this combination did it for Judas. He had enough, no more. And so Jesus, Judas decides to make his own preparations for Passover. And he does so by joining the priest. He gains an audience with the murderous priest and he makes an offer to be their inside man. He will make their dreams come true. 
Judas will betray his friend and master so that the priests can stab him with their venom. And this betrayal is like winning the lottery for the priest. Note it says they're glad. They party like it's New Year's Eve before COVID. They throw money at Judas like lobbyists at a senator. Mark doesn't clarify if Judas asked for money up front, but either way, he betrays the Savior for silver. And this isn't merely greed, but it's a gross imbalance of values. For in Scripture, relationships and friendships belong to that which is enduring and imperishable. But silver and gold are perishable matters, good but no enduring value, really. To, to, to betray Jesus for cash is to choose the earth over heaven, to pick what is disposable over the permanent. Judah's treachery is so morally ugly, it activates your gag reflex. The precious life of Jesus Christ, Judas feeds to ravenous hyenas, hyenas for a gift card to Starbucks. Thus, he joins team priest, and Judas prepares for Passover by seeking a way to betray Jesus. He's got to figure out how to lead Jesus into their trap. Meanwhile, though, as this one apostle joins the dark side, the other disciples are being more practical. Passover is fast approaching, and if they procrastinate, all the rooms in Jerusalem will be taken. Now, the translation of verse 12 has long caused confusion as it seems to date it to the day of Passover itself. Yet this is not correct. Instead of on the first day, it should be read as concerning the first day. This is not a time stamp, but it's the topic of the disciples' question. Concerning the first day, the disciples say to Jesus, where will you have us to go? Besides, it's pretty clear from what we know that most preparations happened on the 13th, the day before Passover, on the 14th. Particularly, it was on the 13th of the month that you searched the house for all leaven, gathered it, and disposed of it on the 14th. Hence, the disciples know, must know where they will eat the Passover to get in the day before and to sweep it clean of leaven besides other preparations. Therefore, the disciples want to prepare the room on the 13th of the month so that they can eat the Passover the following day. The key point, though, of this is the disciples fully expect to enjoy Passover the next day with Jesus. Hence, they are eager to get prepped the day before. And our Lord has some great directions for them. Note, he says, head into the city where you'll bump into a man carrying a clay pot of water. Follow that guy until he enters the house. Then you will tell the homeowner, the teacher says, where is my guest room for the Passover? He'll show you a large, already furnished upper room, and there you shall make preparations. Now, Jesus' instructions here should strike you as oddly random and too good to be true. Follow a guy carrying a large water pot? Well, what if there's more than one? Next, on the day before Passover, they'll actually get a large, fully furnished room? This is like going to a sold-out concert without tickets 
and some stranger gives you 12 VIP front row seats. This never happens, but it does for our Lord. And so the disciples take off, and it goes down just as he said. But how is this possible? Jerusalem was booked up. How is there a free room? Well, it is because our Lord knows providence, and providence marches to the beat of our Lord's will. Indeed, the point of these details and remarkable instructions is to show that our Lord is in divine control. The will of God has mapped out every detail, and Jesus knows them and performs them. This reveals that Jesus was not an accident of tragic events. He was not prey caught by evil predators. Rather, Jesus orchestrates everything leading up to the Passover and his death, and he submits to it willingly and freely. Everyone is making plans here, each with their own purpose and idea, but it's the will of Christ that's behind the wheel. The priests, they think that they'll kill Jesus against his will. Judas expects to surprise Jesus with his treachery. The disciples hope hope to enjoy the feast the following day. Everyone's trying to impose their plans on Jesus, but little do they know that they are merely parts in God's sovereign plan. And this becomes more evident as dinner time rolls around. Jesus now shows up in the upper room in Jerusalem with all 12 of the apostles. And there they sit down for a meal before the big holiday tomorrow. Yet again, it's fairly clear that this is not the Passover meal, as nothing is hinted at that reflects the Passover meal. For example, there's no mention of bitter herbs, different cups of wine with their own blessings. There's no story of the Exodus, and especially there's no whiff of the roasted Passover lamb. This is the eve of Passover, and not Passover. Yet as they are enjoying the meal, Jesus makes an announcement. He clears his throat, excuse me, my dear apostles, one of you will betray me. Talk about a stink bomb dropped. He tells his inner circle of comrades that one of them is a traitor. Two things increase the criminality of treachery. The higher the person's status and the more important the mission. It is worse to betray a general than a fellow soldier. It's far more evil to turn traitor on a top-secret military mission than to switch sides on a playground. Thus, this treachery wins the blue ribbon as it stabs in the back the Son of God, who's bringing forth the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus discloses more injury to the insult. He says, it is one of you eating with me. Now, Jesus has more disciples than just the twelve. So to be extra explicit, he underscores that the Benedict Arnold is one of the dozen men sitting around the table with him this very evening. By this phrase, though, Jesus also alludes to Psalm 41, which is a psalm about the Lord's suffering servant. There, the psalmist David laments that all his enemies have encircled him. They're full of malice, whispering evil, and imagining the worst for him. And this assembly of foes even includes his close, trusted friend, the friend who ate David's bread 
has raised his heel against him. This is the bitterest flavor of betrayal, the nearness of the relationship. And table fellowship was considered one of the sweetest bonds of friendship. You shared meals with friends and family, not hostile foes. The food consecrated the commitment of loyalty and affection. To betray this was high treason. It is grand sedition against the friendship. The most atrocious and disgusting treachery is being committed against our Lord, which is not lost in the apostles. Note they gasp in horror. Grief, vexation, sorrow, anger, anger swirls within them and all about them. The foul odor is so hideous they have to get it off. They deny it. Around the room they go, each in turn, not I. Now, true, they technically frame this as a question, is it I? But this is a rhetorical question that's not seeking information, but it's asserting a strong denial, it is not me. The apostles play a speed game of not I. Not I, says Peter. Not I, say John. James barks, not I. Judas asserts, Not I. Yes, Judas lies through his yellow teeth. With vows and promises, Judas pretends to be horrified. I would never. I bet it's that tax collector Matthew or Simon the Zealot. He's the revolutionary, always too political. Judas lied good enough that all the other disciples do not pick him out of the lineup. And our Lord chooses not to expose him. He doesn't name Judas. Instead, Jesus only underlines the crime. He says, it's one of the twelve. It is one who's dipped with me in the same dish. Now, this dipping is not a timing thing, as if to spotlight Judas at that moment. No, rather, it's a friendship thing. To dip in the same dish is like to share straws, to split a dinner, to eat off the same plate. This is what you do with your closest comrades and companions. Jesus has done this with all 12 of his inner circle. Jesus and the apostles are kind of like a traveling football team. They've battled together on the field and they live together off the field. Again, Jesus is dissecting then all the layers of sin in this treachery. And for such a grand sin, there are great consequences. As he says, the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. This is the plan that our Lord is following. Everyone is making preparations according to their agendas, but Jesus follows the blueprint of Scripture, the Word of God. And Scripture's recipe is spelled out, the Son of Man has to go, he must die. He cannot live, but he must be killed. Thus, everything our Lord is doing is preparing for his death to fulfill Scripture. The Old Testament words are divine necessity, and Jesus completes them with obedience to fulfill all righteousness, to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. Nevertheless, the divine necessity does not excuse the role you play in it. As he pronounces, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, our Lord declares judgment and condemnation on Judas for his treachery. 
For such a high crime against the heavenly Son of Man, there must be the most intense fury of justice and wrath. Indeed, so hot and merciless will be Judas' judgment that it would be better if he had never been born. Non-existence seems sweet compared to the wrath he will face. Yet at first glance, this seems to be a bit of a head-scratcher. Judas' betrayal is part of the plan of Scripture. It was the foreordained will of God, and he's still held responsible. If it's part of God's plan, shouldn't Judas be excused? Isn't Judas just a victim of providence, which should let him off the hook? No, not to the least by our Lord. Full judgment is still measured out for Judas for his crimes. Indeed, our Lord puts right next to each other the sovereign will of God that ordains whatsoever comes to pass and our full responsibility for our actions under the law. These may seem to be intention to us, but they're not. Indeed, if we were Judas, we would play the woke card. It's just an unjust system of providence. We would speak truth to power and aim complaints at God. But I had daddy issues. School was unfair. The economy was broken. Under the challenges of providence, we are quick to blame shift and to make excuses for our sin. Indeed, Judas had to be doing this. For him to betray Jesus and join team priest means he thought the priests were correct and that Jesus was wrong. Judas justified his actions by blaming Jesus. In Judas' mind, Jesus was incorrect, and he had to die. Likewise, we are ever prone to blame God. He made me endure this suffering. He handed out a difficult providence. It's his fault. And sure, we endure many evils committed against us. We cannot control the bad things in life, but we are still held fully accountable for how we respond. The law permits no excuses, and we all stand condemned in our sin. The law allows us no blame shifting. Thankfully, the high treason of Judas is unique to him. We can't quite do this, but we have all sinned against our eternal God and creator, And so we deserve his everlasting punishment. We cannot blame anyone else, for our sin is all ours. We are wicked ourselves, and there's no excuse. And yet, this is exactly why the Son of Man had to go. We cannot blame shift, but in his love, Christ is able to shift our guilt. We cannot take our sin and put it on another, but Jesus took our sin and put it on himself. For it was necessary that our sin debt be paid, the law had to be satisfied, which is why it was necessary for Jesus to die for you. And this is precisely why Jesus is controlling every detail here in preparation for Passover. He's making arrangements for his death as your sacrifice. The priest and Judas want to murder. The disciples think they will eat lamb. 
But our Lord knows and plans to become the Lamb the very next day for our salvation, to redeem our souls from death. To arrange for your own death seems harsh, but Jesus did exactly this because he loved you. He planned out his own sacrifice to take your sin upon himself, to become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus suffered the worst betrayal by a friend so that he could become your eternal friend. And all Jesus asked of you is to confess your sin and trust in him. Thus, may we not blame shift, but with humble confession, may we cast ourselves on Christ. Let us admit our own bankruptcy to rest in the infinite wealth and grace of Jesus. For by such faith and repentance, Jesus makes you his own friend, and he will never betray you. He will never be unfaithful to you. And Jesus gives you the best plans for the future. Not necessarily for tomorrow, but for eternity, life with him. Beloved, this is your Savior. This is how he prepared for your salvation. And this is how he will keep you in his will for his eternal life. Amen.